Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode eight of our Economic Injustice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about the themes of education, racism, refugees and asylum seekers. You will hear from Kadi Gai who organised a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Gloucestershire, UK. She received a huge backlash and racist abuse, as well as tremendous support, including from the local police. Kadi recognised the need for a long-term approach to counter racial and economic injustice, which are so linked. She set up the Local Equality Commission, which works with partners to tackle racial, political and economic injustice collaboratively, especially through education. So I live in rural Gloucestershire. Um, I was born here and I've lived here all my life. And growing up, I have always been aware of issues around racial prejudice and diversity and equality. So we felt kind of compelled um, over the summer from kind of the momentum gained from the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the tragic murder of George Floyd that we wanted to highlight issues of racial injustice in our local area, um, you know, being one of few mixed race or black and ethnic minority children um, growing up in the area, I think you very quickly are made aware of issues around racism and diversity. Um, you know, I went to a primary school where myself and my brother were two of four mixed race children, you know, and it's, it's a fantastic place to grow up and I love it. And this is my home and it is possibly one of the most beautiful and idyllic places. It's somewhere that I want to be and I want my, my daughter to grow up. Um, I just think it's it's a difficult area. The only way I can describe it, it's a it's almost a very insular bubble, kind of away from reality. You know, it's it's a very traditional area and it's not particularly progressive. You know, and being from a family where my parents were divorced and my father is black and my mother is white, um, I was probably kind of somewhat distanced from my black heritage growing up. I suppose you become a product of your white peers, and I think you know I went through that stage of straightening my hair all the time. You know, and and I think the issue that I've had is being in such a small minority, um, you know, in the Forest of Dean, there is a 0.2% black population. And I think I spent a lot of my my youth growing up wanting to fit in and wanting to, to not draw any more attention to the fact that I am, you know, the, the minority in the situation. And I think there are instances where I probably overlooked racism and I was complicit in allowing that to happen because I wanted to remain as as kind of accepted as I could be I think um, and I think when we saw the development of the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's murder I think for me that was it was a catalyst and I suppose it was across the globe and actually that for me was you know this is happening this is this is rife it's 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 current it's it's not going away and what am I going to do to play my part in trying to tackle this in a rural space where those where those conversations and that dialogue isn't happening. So I think for me that was probably my my tipping point and I thought I can't sit here any longer and and become more frustrated with issues around racism if I'm not prepared to be the person that's going to try and tackle it head on. Um, so myself and a friend decided that we were going to organise a Black Lives Matter demonstration in support of that movement and to show solidarity with that movement and it was quite a journey. Um, we had quite a significant amount of opposition um, to that in our area. And I suppose that kind of reinforced the desperate need for this sort of work where we are. We initially approached a lot of councils in the area 
and kind of said to them, this is something we wanted to do. Um, would there be any spaces available to us? Um, and it was Living Town Council that came back first and offered us the space in Bathurst Park, which was fantastic. And I think it was kind of from the moment that we that we started publicising the event that we realised maybe just how naive we had been and actually how kind of deeply ingrained the racism in our area is. You know, and we had battles with the councils. The councils cancelled the event, you know, and supported the All Lives Matter campaign. And I suppose, you know, there's this underlying idea that actually why do we need this in the forest of dean we don't have black people here we don't have ethnic minority groups here um and i think when we tried to approach the event that was something i took into consideration is how do we how do we do this and try and you know keep relations as strong as possible but also understand that there is a right and a wrong and how do we how do we combat that at the time whilst we were kind of we were we were trying to put this together you know there were a lot of concerns about the pandemic and i understood that we were in a situation where this isn't something that is necessarily you know the right time for this but actually and i have to make a decision i'm in that moral dilemma for me you know basic black human rights take precedent we put in all sorts of measures to ensure that actually this was safe it was run according to guidelines um, so a local resident started a petition <clears throat> that was sent to the council in which she addressed the fact that she didn't want this happening during the pandemic and that they wanted to postpone the event. The council took this very seriously. Um, I believe they received quite a few complaints over the course of a couple of days, um, you know, from concerned residents expressing their kind of dismay at us being given permission to do this. I'm aware that racism exists and I'm aware that it's right and I'm aware that it's prevalent in, in this particular area that I live in, but I completely underestimated just how severe the backlash would be. Um, you know, I didn't expect to receive threats. I didn't expect to be followed home. I didn't expect to be subjected to abuse day in, day out, on social media, on direct message, on the street. You know, that was something I hadn't prepared myself for, I think. Um, you know, and I've always been referred to as the angry black girl who's overly emotional and is is always, you know, causing a problem about something. And that's, you know, something I've dealt with all my life. And it went on and on and on, you know. And I think I tried to take this very kind of composed, collected approach to it, which was hard and it, it takes its toll because, it. to be perfectly honest, it sends you insane. <laughs> because, you know, you're battling with people about, race and your identity and you know my skin color is something I'm never going to be able to change so I'm fighting for something that I don't believe I should have to be fighting for um, and I then received a letter from the mayor of Lydney um, and the town council um, that cancelled the event in support of the All Lives Matter campaign um, you know they gave reasons around the pandemic but actually fundamentally what they wanted to stress was that yes, whilst this is important, actually all lives matter and this isn't something they could support any longer. Um, it was at that point that my local MP, Mark Harper, decided that he was going to address the event in the House of Commons and express how, express how strongly he was against allowing this to happen in his, in his constituency. Um, you know, it was the first Black Lives Matter demonstration that had ever been taken to the House of Commons in the UK. Um, or in fact, any demonstration that had been 
that the councils and the local MP had tried to stop from happening. It was it was the first time. And we gained national press attention from the letter and from the controversy that had happened within within the community. And the council then decided to invite us in for a meeting. Um, you know, and, and after that meeting, the council then decided they were going to hold a vote um, to see whether we could go ahead and have the event. Um, you know, and meanwhile, my local MP is tweeting us and quote tweeting us and posting articles about us and, you know, allowing this kind of racial hatred to continue and was inciting racial hatred, you know. I reached out on several occasions. I've spoken to the police, you know, I was begging for these comments to be deleted and he wouldn't, he wouldn't remove them. I think it was on the day of the vote, the police pointed out to the council that there was actually a loophole um, in legislature that if the council was, were to withdraw their support, they could face legal um, ramifications for doing so, which was incredible. We had the vote and we won the vote, eight votes to two, and we were allowed to go ahead with the event, which was fantastic, much to the dismay of some people, I'm sure. But, you know, it was it was so positive to see such an overwhelming response from the council um, for them to kind of U-turn and allow us to go ahead, you know, and, and I owe the police our event because <laughs> had that not happened, the vote probably would have gone very differently. Gloucestershire Police Force are incredibly progressive and are acknowledging that there are issues of racism within the police force, and I think that's the first step. Um, and I think by doing what they did with the Black Lives Matter movement in the, in the Gloucestershire area um, was huge in kind of, seeking to repair those relationships and showing, showing kind of solidarity and support with that. So the event went ahead really successfully, um, you know, and as I said, it was kind of a, an opportunity for people to learn and listen and to, to show solidarity and support this movement. But the issues that we experienced, I think, highlighted how desperately we needed to continue this and provide some longevity to this work. So I decided I wanted to set up an organisation. At this point, I didn't know what or how, um, it's not something I was familiar with, but I knew we needed to do something. And I was actually really fortunate that a fantastic lady called Rebecca from London had heard about me through the BBC documentary um, and contacted me and was aware that I wanted to put something in place um, and she wanted to facilitate it. Um, so she helped immensely in getting this initiative set up and getting it out there very, very quickly. Um, so I set up the Local Equality Commission. So it's a community initiative um, that kind of seeks to suit to some of the fractures um, that occurred from the Black Lives Matter protest and as a result of the last decade of austerity and to work with kind of existing and long-standing organisations in the community to tackle issues of racial and social and political injustice. You know, a huge part of our work has been looking at how, you know, economic empowerment is the cornerstone kind of in tackling racial justice and that's something that we've focused on significantly within the LEC. Economic empowerment is kind of the cornerstone for sort of systemic equality and social change, um, you know, and by supporting community initiatives, you know, and working with charities and schools and youth groups and, and these, existing, these existing structures, you know, and providing outreach programs. This last decade of, of, of kind of austerity, you know, has only really served to deepen cultural divides, I think, um, you know, and actually it's hindered, hindered any progression, you know, and these two things are so interlinked and without economic justice, you don't have racial justice. Um, and I think that's something that's so important. We are working alongside schools. We are working with universities. You know, we have 
worked with local arts groups to produce pieces. I've always been a firm believer in the fact that racism is taught. It's not something that we are born with. Um, you know, and speaking in these primary schools, that is evident. You know, these children have an understanding of equality and they have an understanding of differences. And I think for me, it's about providing these children with an understanding of black history and understanding of how we have progressed. But also it's about providing them with basic skills to interact with each other and to understand that, like, you know, sh you, we can't discriminate against personal differences and they have to have an understanding of, of equality. And it, it's taught so we can unteach it. <laughs> you know, it's not something that has to continue. It doesn't always have to be this way. And I think we're not needing to change these children's mindsets yet. We're needing to provide them with a mindset of equality and diversity. And, um, you know, and we're working with, with these channels and through these channels to, to further educate and advocate for justice, you know, and, and it's, and I suppose, I suppose the controversy around the actual event itself provides us with a platform that I probably wouldn't have had before. And it's been kind of a launching pad to this, these incredible opportunities. Um, you know, my life has turned upside down in the last six months and I want a completely kind of new trajectory and it's fantastic, you know, and I think the people that we're working with are so passionate about ensuring that there is some change now and that we we become more progressive and we move forward in the Forest of Dean. Um, and that's incredible and I couldn't ask for, for more than that. It's just completely kind of overwhelming. You know, if somebody had said to me six months ago that I would be in the position that I'm in now, I just wouldn't have believed it, you know. And I think it's neither passion and a desire to do this work in a much more formal sense for me now, you know, I'm finishing my degree um, and I've been in a really fortunate position where I've been provided with some funding um, that now allows me to take the next two years. I've, you know, struggled with, you know, whether or not I can do this and I can cope with it. And sometimes, and some days it, it gets too much, you know, and it's, you know, I will be <laughs> sat crying for hours on end about how much I can't cope, but actually, you know, looking at the bigger picture and thinking about my motivations and my daughter and the reasons why we're doing this and you know for social change and for justice um i'm so honored that i have been given the platform to do that um it's something that i never thought i would have you know, and i am so so grateful that it's me that has this opportunity and i hope that i can do it some justice <laughs> You'll hear from Tessa Gray, Senior Legal Advisor at the Hub Drop-In Project in Newcastle and Chair of Recovering Justice. She discusses how economic injustice affects migrants, refugees and asylum seekers and other vulnerable groups, the chronic unemployment in the northeast of England since the closure of shipyards and mines in the 1980s, the flawed welfare system and the need for a living wage on top of a basic minimum wage, and what changes are needed to bring about economic justice. Okay, well, I'm part of a project called The Hub Project in Newcastle, in the West End of Newcastle, which I think is one of the most deprived areas in the country. Um, I'm, I'm, by training, I'm a lawyer, um, and The Hub has two parts to it. It has a drop-in session where people come to eat, 
uh, to talk, to have their kids entertained, to have health checks done. But in addition, we have the Hub Advice Project. And what we do is provide legal advice to asylum seekers, refugees, all migrants, anybody who washes up on the shores of the UK who needs advice. Um, in addition to that, we provide advice for um, really desperate members of the community who are not migrants, who have lived in the West End forever, it seems. But the, the bulk of our work is with migrants. And of course, that's changed a lot with COVID. Uh, we don't have a drop-in anymore. Our drop-in used to have between 80 and 100 people plus kids every week. We've maintained the advice services. Um, the problems we're facing are slightly different. A lot of our clients are now in the hotels. Um, and because they're in hotels, they now have no access to money. So we have an emergency fund and we, because they have no cash. Um, they can't get a bus. They can't put money on their phone. Um, they can't do anything apart from eat. So we have emergency funds for those people. In spite of government promises, we still have a small number of people who are still actually homeless. And for them, we provide money, uh, sleeping bags. Um, we have a shower, we have a washing uh, machine. We have a tumble dryer there. Um, so we do a range of things. I've worked there since, um, I've been working at the Hub since uh, 1999. So I've been there 21 years about. Um, and I retired, formally retired about three years ago. And I had the party and I had the presents and then I went back. I made. I said that if you're ever busy, just give me a call. Um, and in fact, they're always busy. We have two um, advice workers now, and I, I do the advice as well, and I run the advice service. So that's what we do. Any society in which some people have extraordinary amounts of money and other people have extraordinarily small amounts of money isn't economically just, but you have, to, I think you have to think of wealth in different terms as well. So if you give people um, equal money, it, I'm really sorry about my dog. <laughs> if you give people equal money, you don't necessarily give them equal access to services, equal access to education because that's all embedded in a structure which runs alongside the economic structure, but isn't quite the same. And we, when we're talking about the UK, we're talking about enormous amounts of inherited wealth. And that, that, it makes a, that makes a difference. It makes a difference to the psyche of the people who inherit the wealth and the, the same for the people who don't. Um, so I think part of economic justice is we would stop 
the inheritance of wealth. I lived in the Northeast most of my life. Um, so when we talk about employment opportunities, I'm not sure what we're talking about. We've had chronic unemployment for, well, I should say since the 1980s. Um, we have projects to help people get into employment. You cannot move for projects to help get people into employment, but there are no jobs. And the jobs that there are, are minimum wage, um, fairly brutal jobs. And you can, and there was a time when the Northeast had full employment, um, more than full employment. There was more work than people to do it. And that stopped. And we've never been able to replace that. Um, we're talking about shipyards that closed that employed 5,000 people. Not, you know, you cannot have 5,000 people opening their own small business. Um, the, you know, the mines in County Durham employed probably about 30,000 people. Uh, and that has never been replaced. So you can walk around a lot of the Northeast towns now and see evidence of wealth in buildings that are very beautiful, very expensive to build. And I think the same, I, I always think the feel the same when I go to West Yorkshire and you look at the, ta you know, the town halls of places like Leeds and Sheffield and you realize these were very prosperous places. Um, so um, economic injustice and employment is partly about wages. It's about the um, conditions of employment and it's about the freedom in employment. And people just forget that um, high wages, um, good employment tends to give you freedom, sometimes small, you know, sometimes the opportunity to take an afternoon off to see the doctor. It gives you a right to manage your own time. It gives you a right to adjust your working hours to your families and so on. Um, the sort of jobs that working class people do don't offer any of that. They buy your time and they want every minute of it. And there is no accommodating to that. So if you clock in at eight and you clock off at five, between that hours, the employer owns every minute of you. That isn't true if you... I mean, there's the lovely solicitors in Newcastle and they're really lovely and they're really good, but they have a take your dog to work policy. You know, this is this is a different working environment completely. I'm not against taking your dog to work. I'm just saying this is a different sort of work to what um, working class people are doing. So it's about a lot of things not just wages because if you increase minimum wage the job the job and the conditions of work will still remain shitty actually well i said we need to stop inheritance i think the inheritance the money that you leave when you die goes back to the government not this government for god's sake but a halfway decent government I think we need, a, I've, I've thought about this a lot um, because I was initially thinking this is not a good idea, but I think we need a basic minimum income. 
for everybody. And I think it has to be decent. I don't think it has to be, you get universal credit without the job commitment. I think it has to be something where people could have a halfway decent life. And, um, and I, I, one of the interesting things I thought, because they tried it in Finland, and one of the things they discovered was it made a massive difference to people's mental health. Um, and I think that's, worth, that's an argument on its own. Um, I think we need to have a cap on the maximum income as well. I know these, these are all policies that we're not gonna get at the minute, but I think we need a cap on the maximum income. Um, I think we need a living wage on top of the basic minimum income. And that living wage is a living wage. It's not a minimum wage. And I think we need to invest a lot more in children. And that means investing a lot more in parents. We invest almost nothing in that in children at the moment. Our classes are huge. Our teachers are badly paid. The, um, the whole secondary education has become a business. We don't see anything about children as worth investing in. And I mean, the really tiny example of this was when Ian Duncan Smith introduced the two-child rule to child benefits. What, what has the third child done wrong that they don't being kept, deserve to be cared for in the way that the first two children did? That's, that's not a country that wants to nurture its children. And I did say nurture parents, but I do think we need to extra nurture moms. I think moms, particularly young moms, get a really bad deal out of this government. And the last thing I think, the thing that I really fancied um, as a policy was education cradle to the grave. Um, I was one of those lucky people who went to a university free, um, not at the right age, at a later age, didn't cost me a penny, I got a grant. Um, and I went, to, I went to do that from being a cleaner. Um, I cleaned hotels. So that, and that was for me, not just about economic injustice, it's about soul culture. So I don't know why we charge people to be educated. I don't know why you can't go to university three when you're 85. I don't understand where education has become a commodity when actually I think it can be a real driver for justice. One of the things that I was thinking when you were talking, when I was talking about stopping inheritance um, is that what the, there are two things about people like Bezos. One is um, that he is obscenely rich and obscenely greedy, uh, but he's going to die like the rest of us. Um, and what his money is going to go to people who will then be obscenely rich and obscenely greedy. Um, so I think the long term plan is you stop that happening. 
you you just stop it immediately that that money is going to go back to the state for communal good that's one thing and it reminds me of this is going to be way off your interview but George Bernard Shaw talking about what can we do about the monarchy because obviously he was an Irishman he was a Republican and his suggestion was that the current monarchy he was talking about could be any he said um we we get rid of them but we don't shoot them because that's a bit gross. What we do is we say to them, you're alive, you're useless, you have no skills, you have no worth to the community, but we will let you continue with your absurd wealth and your absurd spending, but when you are dead, it stops. And we, there is the, we don't have any more of you, but but it, it, I mean, I thought George Bancho was a sort of humanist and I think he wasn't in favour of shooting anybody. So I think he thought the idea of just saying, yeah, we'll let you trundle along, we'll patronise you because you're useless, but it will stop. And it stops when you lot are dead. I think that's one thing. Um, I think the, the tension with something like the textile workers is... Um, I don't know if you saw Years on Years, the, the television series. Um, it was, watch it. It was absolutely fantastic. It, it, it really was. But in the closing speech, the woman, the old woman, who's the only one with any grip on reality, does a closing speech in which she says, no, we're all to blame. Um, there's a T-shirt for a pound and we think that's great we'll have a t-shirt for a pound um, and we don't think about why is that t-shirt only a pound but the problem with getting taking a simple view of that is that working classes in other countries only have a pound for a t-shirt so they are both exploiting and exploited at the same time. And that's perfectly possible. And that's a conundrum we have to solve. Um, now, I think one of the ways you solve it is that you stop taking money out of the people taking money out of the clothing industry. Because the wages are low, not only to produce a one pound t-shirt, but to produce wealth for the owners. So you take that factor out, that alone would increase wages of textile workers. If you increase the economic wealth of the people in this country, for example, then they're not going to be jumping on one pound t-shirts in the same way. So it's not simply, um, it's not a simple problem because there are lots of bits of it right in your argument but we, we're always getting close to arguing for enlightened capitalism you know which almost makes um is turning walmart into um the catholic missionary in a way i don't mean that to be rude to catholics but um 
and we need I'm, I'm not saying your campaign was wrong and i think you were morally right but we need to get beyond expecting that capitalists really want a change there's a lovely cartoon which is just two kids and one's I, I, I don't know whose it is but one's saying to they're in school and one's saying to the other they're not going to educate you to get rid of them um and so I'm, I'm really grateful for little steps in enlightened capitalism, but it is not going to produce a just world. I was just thinking in my own, own work, there's a lovely little organization called Tax Aid, which is, it, I think it's voluntary. I don't think anybody gets paid. And it's, it's accountants with a conscience who volunteer a certain amount of time to sort out people's tax problems. And they do it for people who are low paid. Um, and they did some smashing stuff with me for the big issue sellers. Because a lot of my clients at one time were remaining big issue sellers. And in order to, I mean, selling a big issue is a job. Absolutely, it's a job. But in order to get the tax credits, child benefits and so on, they, had, they obviously had to register self-employed, um, which was easy to do. I did that for them. And then lo and behold, they have a tax return to do. Um, and that's, that's the Romanian. I'm not, you know, I can, you know, add up. Um, and a lot of them, of course, got into massive fines for not doing their tax returns on time. And, and I... I contacted Tax Aid, um, and it's tiny, and they don't make a massive difference all over the country. But they were fabulous with my guys, absolutely fabulous. And they got their fines um, reduced. They did their proper tax returns for them. And and I, I, I'm, it's not a big organisation, but I'm really fond of them <laughs> for that reason. And it's a it's a bit of an odd thing, um, a little niche thing that I think produces some sort of economic justice um, because it acknowledges that big issue sellers are workers. And I have to say the big issue does not treat them like that. Um, and that they're in a position where they can't cope with the bureaucracy of the consequences of that. So I love them. I hope they're still going because I haven't contacted them for a bit. How would I relate economic justice? There isn't any. There is absolutely no justice at all. Um, my clients are all lovely, but sometimes they lose their cool and I don't blame them at all. Um, and I had a lovely Iraqi client the other day who just lost it completely. Um, his circumstances are dire. He's living in one of the hotels. And he, he just completely lost it. And he said to me, you invade my country, you steal my oil. And now I see in your car, you are enjoying my petrol. Um, and I just thought, you're dead right. You're dead right. That's summed up like a whole foreign policy, a whole everything in one sentence. And I know why you're angry. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm enjoying his petrol, you know. Um, 
And what I see, I think, is that my work is the results of imperialism, the results of empire, the results of theft on an international scale, and the results of political meddling by the West. And what I see are the victims of that. Um, and there seems to be no guilt felt that, about that at all. There seems to be no guilt felt um, about the fact that, of course, the invasion of Iraq produced refugees. Of course it did, and they knew it would, and they took no responsibility for that. Um, so I, I see global <laughs> capitalism is sort of mirrored in our little office on a Tuesday um, because global capitalism produces victims that it takes no responsibility for. And, and that's all. You came to my country, you invaded my country, you stole my oil, and now you're enjoying my petrol. And that's all encapsulated in that. And he's a lovely guy. He's just had enough. Oh, yes. Um, well, it's created by the state, yes. It's um, Well, I mean, some of the people I'm working with have no money at all. They have no recourse to public funds at all. Um, because their case, their asylum case has failed and there is no safety net for those people. Um, some of the people I'm working with have asylum support. Um, which is so miserable that, um, well, you can't live on it. You really can't live on it. And people say um, they get they get their housing provided. Um, it's quite interesting that um, private landlords leapt on this because they have in certainly in Newcastle, and I'm sure in large parts of London, they have properties that they could not let to anybody else. Um, property. I, I had a woman who was given a flat with no back door. So her flat was open to the street. Um, rats, that type of thing. Rats, very common, boilers that don't work, gas fires that are dangerous, I've seen. Um, so the, the, the idea that, oh, asylum seekers get free housing, you might, that's one thing of saying, oh, the Home Office gives large amounts of undeserved money to private landlords who then vote for them is another way of, of looking at it. I had a woman whose hall had no floorboards, so she was walking over the joists not to fall into the subfloor. Um, it's a joy for private landlords. Um, and initially, when they were allowed to have um, local authority housing, it, certainly in towns like Newcastle, it was a blessing to the local authority because it filled their voids. They had lots of voids of council housing that they couldn't rent. Um, so I'm not really interested in their free housing. Um, the thing about not being able to work is I don't understand it. 
don't understand it on economic grounds. But this is why I think they're not allowed to work. If they work, they join a community and they make friends and they make friends who will support them. Um, so you then get um, a lot of situations and it, it shows it with kids in school. When they want to deport a child who's in a school, all the class writes to the home office. Um, we, you have it in, um, in, in phenomenon where people say, yes, there are a lot of bogus asylum seekers, but this one, he's our asylum seeker and he's genuine because he has an allotment with, with me, you know. Um, so that the, the purpose of not working, I don't think it's economic because it doesn't make economic sense. The purpose of not working is isolation. Absolutely isolation. And once people stop being isolated, they, they gather support. They gather people who are prepared to um, write to the Home Office, make appeals, support them. Um, and, and, you know, and deportation decisions get turned around because of that support and solidarity. So I think the not working is isolation. And that works. And not only does it work in that people are isolated, they feel isolated. And, and it's quite, it's quite interesting when you ask, when I, you know, sometimes I, talking to somebody. I try not ask masses the questions apart from the ones that relate to the problem because it's not my business. But sometimes you're talking to people and you find what they did um, before they became asylum seekers. And they had perfectly normal social good jobs. One was a travel agent, you know, in Iran. And so to have had that perfectly normal social, I know how COVID has hit me. You know, I seem I just go into work once a week um, and, and that's all. Um, and I'm so I think if you've had a perfectly normal social job like I had before COVID restrictions, that isolation really stings. It really does, because it's not just that you don't have an office to go to or a factory to go to. You, you don't have the, the sort of camaraderie that leads to. You don't have the mates to go to the football with. All that social glue in your life goes. And one of the main reasons for that is you're not allowed to work. I think it's, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastated. Um, I think it's not, I'm try and put this properly. Um, it, I don't think it's made um, less economic justice. What it's opened up is the true horror of the, of the lack of it and the state we're in. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, it's, it's people's expectations, isn't it? Loads of people have somehow fallen through the cracks 
of the economic support. And what they feel when they talk about that, because I've, I've watched them on TV and stuff, is they feel let down because they expected the government to support them. They didn't really think that a government would leave them with no money because they happened to start a new job the day after the crucial date or they hadn't been running their little shop long enough. They, and I think what, what I really want to say to them was your ex your expectation was misguided from the beginning. Um, I don't know, why did you think the government wouldn't do this to you? So there are, there are lots of people who have no income. There are always lots of people who have no income. There are some more now. Um, I'm surprised by... Um, people who have now had to sign on to use universal credit and are quite horrified at how low it is. They didn't really think you only got 74 quid a week. You know, they were absolutely certain that benefit payments had smartphones and 48-inch tellies. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of hoping that The people who have been the most awful victims of this um, will start to see a diff they have a different view of how our economic system is run. It's outrageous that people are left without money. And it was misguided of them to think that that would never happen. That's one thing, I think. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure about how it will play out in the future at all. We're already being told that we somehow have to pay out this pay back this non-existent debt, um, as if, I don't want to know, was it Laura Coonsberg that said we'd overmacked on a credit card? Um, I'm tempted to say, oh, for God's sake. You know, um, economies aren't like that. If the government needs money, it prints it. Simple, simple as we print money. Um, the debt is whatever the Chancellor of the Exchequer chooses to think the debt is at any one time. But it's quite clear that this debt is being played and played, and it's going to be an excuse to punish poor people. And that's going to be a cause, I think, of tension and stress and possibly, lock, well, you sort of feel it would result in people finally saying no. Um, I'm not sure whether I'm optimistic or not, but I think the play out after COVID is going to be devastating. Sometimes... Sometimes when I do a pit for someone, um, you know, a uh, disability claim for someone um, and they don't get it um, and we do an appeal, but their anger is directed to people who are getting it, who they think aren't really disabled. 
nobody and well no it's not true some people do but some people say to me um nobody says it, they haven't said to me this is outrageous this is the government punishing disabled people you know um but they do sometimes say but my neighbor over the road i've seen her you know walking up the street um and it's not fair she gets it and i don't and so i'm partly optimistic and partly not i don't know I think what we also have to recognise about Empire is that it did not make everybody um, in the UK rich. Um, certain groups of people benefited enormously, enormously from Empire expansion. Um, and that is same is true for all empires. But um, the slums of London would have looked pretty much the same whether we'd um, annexed India or not. You know, so I think it's a mistake to think of empire in terms of peoples. And we have to remember, if we're talking about empathy, the mill workers in Lancashire did go on strike during the American Civil War and they wouldn't work with cotton. Part of the problem there economically was we destroyed the Indian cotton, cotton industry um, but um, so yeah there are massive evidences of solidarity and I think I've, the last couple of answers I've given are a bit too pessimistic really and I can think of examples that would boost me up and I hang on to them too and I see them often in tiny ways I had a client who's you know, look, my clients move on. They don't need me anymore. But I had a client who was Iranian. He was a wheelchair user. Um, he'd been in the Iraq-Iran war and he'd lost his leg on a landmine. And he, the other leg had also been damaged. So he was a wheelchair user. And I did an appeal for him. And he lived in the high rise in Elzig, the Elzig Flats. Um, and when I, I drove him home from the appeal and I was parked and I was trying to get his wheelchair out of my car and sort it out. And within a couple of minutes, um, there were like five or six big guys, um, African, one was Algerian, I knew them, one was African, one was Algerian, all asylum seekers, all his neighbours. Um, and they came and they got his wheelchair out for me, for him as well. And then one of the guys carried him across the grass because his wheelchair wouldn't work on the wet grass. Um, and I could play that little film over in my head time and time again it didn't change the world um but it's worth valuing um for a long time i think she moved on but there was a young lass built like a lat you know razor thin um a couple of bands in a push chair and every now and then she would arrive at the project with a large um tin of nescaf for the asylum seekers and then she would just drop it off you know, and then you maybe not see her for six weeks or something. And then she would come again. And, 
she 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 didn't make a big thing of it you know she just gave you this they, they were sort of you know 10 quid tins they weren't coppers um and she just said oh these are for your asylum seekers and we we treasure those moments don't we um yeah and, and it's i mean we don't do languages really jason you know speaks arabic but um sometimes people will phone you up and they say um do you know how to say hello in afghanistan because my neighbors from afghanistan and i'm sure they're very nice but i don't know how to speak to them and these things happen i'm sure all the time um it's just like when you're in the sort of mood that i'm in sometimes and you feel under siege they really hit you in the face you know um and i i i love them i love those events you know um yeah i don't think you can start activism too young and it is I mean I think with the whole climate change thing I think young people have been so much better than old people like me um I mean my own granddaughter was you know she's only 15 I was sleep speaking at the monument in Newcastle about climate change and I'm thinking bloody how where did that come from um so yes you know her parents were saying she was shouldn't be out of school and i'm saying just go for it go for it you know um so yes i mean i've had a life of activism and um my life has i wouldn't don't regard that part of my life as being that bad at all it sounds a bit trivial really but it's some of it's been quite a lot of fun you know, being on a picket can be dangerous and scary, but also lots of people on pickets are really witty, if that makes any sense. So, yes, and I I think kids can be active. Yeah, I'm quite impressed by the Manchester students who seem to have finally drawn a line, you know, from victim to activist. Um, and they're young. I'm very optimistic about the activism of young people. But I mean, my general advice to anybody would be look at your life, look at community. What don't you like about it? Who else doesn't like that? Have a see what you can do. You know, I was, um, I've, I've got a, a, a friend in Stanley who's only recently a very new friend. Stanley is a small um, ex-mining town. It's really small. Um, and she runs a nail bar in Stanley. And then just one day out of the blue, she put up a notice saying um, she was collecting for care for Callie. Um, would people please drop off? These are the things that they'd asked her to collect. If we could drop them off at her shop, um, she would take them to the collection point in Newcastle. Um, she she's a lad from a county Durham town. She's she, she's got a nail bar that is tiny, you know. Um, and when I went to see her, have a chat, drop my stuff off, um, there was masses of it, absolutely masses of it. And she was saying to me, I didn't think I would get much response. So I call her an activist. 
really, because she's talked to everybody who's dropped stuff off. She's stuck her face nose out. She's stuck her face out um, in there to get hit back. And she's done a really good thing. So I treasure that and I treasure her. For more podcasts in this series, search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.